Indeed, O oh God, we are a people who are so very proud of this country, and yet we have just sung that you, we begged you to mentor every flaw, and the flaws seem so much deeper. There are so many more of them. There's, there are things that are ripping our country apart that have erupted in our lifetimes. It's, it's a country that has been cut loose from her historical, divine, God-blessed moorings. And now we are set adrift into a world of relativism and pluralism, a world of materialism and naturalism, a world of postmodernism. It is, there are forces that are, have been unleashed upon us, O oh God, that are turning this country into something that is not at all beautiful to those of us who not only love her, but love you more. She is beautiful because you shed your grace on her. And once you choose to stop shedding that grace, we as a country will be ashamed of where we live. We ask for mercy, O oh God. We ask that you will forgive us once again. Will, will you sweep away the righteous in your judgment of the wicked? You answered Abraham that you wouldn't. So, Father, as a part of the covenant community, the covenant people of God, we want to arouse our slumbering souls and commit ourselves to a greater effort not to live right, we long for grace to do that, but to a greater effort to advance the great commission that you told us to advance before Jesus returned home. So, Father, stir us up, knowing that the only solution that this country or any other country has is to be found in the gospel of peace and the Prince of Peace. Our Father, keep our people safe as so many of them are traveling today. I pray that you will guard them, that you will remind them that this day is the day where God is to be exalted and no one else, no thing else. And might uh, they come, return refreshed and safe. Lord, take these monies, use them for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ and that only. We ask it in Jesus' name. If you're at Daniel, uh, find chapter 11, and uh, let's, let's read some of this. Um, I'm going to read the first four verses, and then I'm going to read four more at the end, or kind of at the middle. <clears throat> so stay with me. We're beginning at verse 1, Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. And a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. 
Now go to verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be for this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that endures forever. Gang, I am impaled on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, Today has a certain significance for me for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's July the 2nd, which is the Sunday before the 4th, which is the Sunday that we normally devote to things like God and country and patriotism and freedom and independence and the history of this grand nation of ours. The second reason that it is significant is that it is my anniversary. 36 years ago today, I and the lovely young Sue Betzelberger were being married. And so um, I... I, um, Toiled over what should I do with this day? Should I, should I use it to focus on the birth of our nation and the history thereof? Or should I use it to focus on the birth of my marriage and the history of it? So I consulted with my wife and she said, do anything but talk about the history of our marriage. So, uh, um, I, I thought that was pretty good counsel and so I decided to go in another direction. Uh, you know, guys, it's always good to be reminded um, how good and how gracious God has been to this great nation of ours. But, but ours is not the only nation um, where God has worked remarkably. And so I thought what I might do is, is, um, is have a kind of a brief history lesson of, of, of a broader scope than just the 200 or so years of, of this country. Um, <clears throat> I, I think you'd agree these are some, some challenging days in which the church finds herself. And uh, so let's, what I want to do is, is just offer you a perspective. Um, and hopefully it'll be of comfort to you and, and directive for you. Gang, the Bible <clears throat> is not a history book. But it contains a lot of history. And when the Bible speaks about history, it speaks historically accurate. That is, the history that's contained in here is accurate history. The book of Daniel, um, out of which we read a bit this morning, is a book that is known for three events. There's the event about those lions and that lion's den... It's also known about a, for a fiery furnace that, uh, that's in there. And it's also known for an occasion, an event, where this hand appears out of nowhere and starts scribbling on the wall. That's why this book is known. 
But there's some other stuff in this book, towards the back, uh, that is far less known, but in some ways is more significant than the, the lion's den, the fiery furnace, and the handwriting on the wall. Daniel 11 is a very intense history lesson, some of which I, I hope to explain to you this morning. The first four verses of Daniel 11 <clears throat> um, mention someone that I bet you know. Have you ever heard of the name Alexander of Macedon? Sure you have. How about this? Alexander the Great. Same fella. That is the man who is in view in verses 3 and 4 of Daniel chapter 11. Alexander the Great was the most successful world conqueror of all time. He was of such importance in terms of world history that the book of Daniel mentions him in chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, and here in chapter 11. Even as a young boy, Alexander was, had a reputation of being fearless. He tamed a, a, a wild, spirited, beautiful stallion that no one else would touch, and he named him Bucephalus, and it was Bucephalus on which he rode all the way to India. He was tutored by Aristotle, and at the age of 16, Alexander the Great became the co-region of Macedon alongside his father, Philip of Macedon, who, by the way, was the first to unite the cities of Greece into a political organization. Um, two years later, he, had, he was thrust into the leadership role of a, of a portion of the Macedonian cavalry and saved his father's life in battle. Two years later, at the age of 20, his father died and he became king. He immediately went on the offensive and um, his first victories were to conquer Asia Minor and then he moved south down along the Mediterranean Sea all the way to Egypt, conquering as he went. On the coast of Egypt, the Mediterranean coast of Egypt, he founded the city Alexandria, which still exists today, which became the, the greatest city in, in the Mediterranean. Um, he named it Alexandria, of course, after himself, which he did for another 60 cities he called Alexandria. Apparently, he liked the sound of his own name. But he was so impressed with um, all of his own successes that he decided on one occasion, by the way, uh, from Egypt, he then turned eastward and went all the way to India. His most significant um, military accomplishment was his victory over the Persians at Gogamela, which was a, uh, it's just an area in northern Iraq. So you, you can imagine, if you can picture in your mind's eye, from Egypt all the way over to India. And then, by the way, still riding on Bucephalus. Uh, and, uh, but his... When in India, his soldiers, his weary, tired soldiers said, that's enough, and he finally turned back west. But he was so impressed with all of his military conquest that he decided that it was time to be worshipped as a god. And so he established himself as deity. And um, he didn't get to enjoy that very long, because within the year, 
Uh, about uh, 12 months later, in 323 B.C., Alexander the Great died at the age of 33. And in 13 years, he had conquered most of the then-known world. Um, his importance to that area can't be overstated. He introduced a Greek influence that, had, that lasted for a thousand years. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, it is, be, it is because of Alexander the Great that the, that the New Testament is written in Greek. Um, when he died, his kingdom was not given to his I think the text said posterity. Yeah. It was not given to his posterity. It was divided up over his four Greek generals. Um, Macedon in Greece was given to Antipater. Thrace and Asia Minor was given to Lysimachus. Syria was ruled by the Seleucid dynasty. And Egypt and Palestine under the Ptolemaic dynasty. Now, gang, stay with me. Don't go to sleep yet. Palestine, you know what Palestine is. That should ring a bell. Palestine is the Holy Land, you know, where Jerusalem is, where Jesus was born and all. Palestine was wrenched from Ptolemaic control by the Seleucid dynasty in 198 B.C. Now, if, um, if you hadn't gone to sleep yet, we're almost to the point. When the Seleucids began to reign in Palestine, the Jews were initially given uh, complete religious freedom. They were allowed to worship according to their own uh, customs and, and law. But the Seleucid emperor was a guy by the name of Antiochus III, and in 187 he died and was replaced by his eldest son, Seleucus IV. He didn't last but 12 years, and then Seleucus died and was replaced by his youngest son, a man whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Does that ring a bell? It should. Antiochus Epiphanes. I said that verses 3 and 4 were about Alexander. Verses 29 to 32 are about Antiochus Epiphanes. The... Um, the first thing that uh, Antiochus did was launch this, this widespread program of Hellenization. And he was convinced that one of the unifying factors of any nation was religion. And so he tried to bring the Jewish religion under his thumb. And he did so via manipulating the priesthood. The then present high priest was a guy by the name of Onias. Onias was somewhat sympathetic to the south, to the, to the Ptolemaic um, empire. And his brother, Jason, was uh, a Seleucid uh, uh, lover. And so uh, Jason outbribed Antiochus and took over the high priesthood. A couple of years later, um, another person by the name of Menelaus offered even more for the high priesthood than had Jason. And because Antiochus needed money... He removed Jason and replaced him with Menelaus, who was not a descendant of Aaron, which meant that he had no right to that high priesthood, which made Jews very angry. Menelaus desecrated the temple. He stole a lot of the 
treasures that were in there. Uh, as a result, Jerusalem riots. Um, Jason returns from exile and a full-scale war breaks out in Jerusalem. Antiochus Epiphanes hears of this riot in Jerusalem, thinking it is aimed at him. He gathers his army to go back south, determined to crush Jerusalem once and for all. He does return, and he does accomplish his military conquest. As a result... He then establishes himself as the reincarnation of Zeus and orders that a altar to Zeus be built on top of the altar of burnt offering inside the Jewish temple and that pig's flesh be sacrificed on it, which has come to be known as the abomination of the desolation. That's in verse 31. <laughs> the event that is mentioned in verse 31 is the event that I just told you about. It is an event that was predicted by the prophet Daniel 400 years before it ever happened. Daniel mentions it in chapter 11, and Antiochus Epiphanes, who, by the way, whose name is etched into Jewish history, 400 years later, later Antiochus Epiphanes performs to the T what it is that uh, Daniel prophesied. By the way, Jesus mentions this abomination of desolation in Matthew 24. He uses it to warn Judaism that she is going to be destroyed again, which she was by Rome in 70 AD. He also uses this event and uses it to um, predict something farther out in the future. Uh, he uses it as an eschatological image. Now, gang. What does all of that have to do with American Christians in the 21st century? You and I, as we, um, as we watch our beloved nation spiraling downward, what are we supposed to be thinking? And perhaps more importantly, what are we supposed to be doing? Or maybe both. What should you be thinking and doing? Well, that's what I'm going to talk to you about, ladies and gentlemen. In, in the particular place in history where we find ourselves, what should the Christian church be thinking and doing? Stay with me. First of all, if no one has ever told you this, may I be the first? There is a Christian view of history. When you get taught history, ladies and gentlemen, that ought to be, it ought to be taught it ought to be understood by us differently than it's understood by everybody else. Um, Christian history, I mean, we could talk about that for hours. But um, here are some of the things that a Christian view of history would include. Number one, God is able to make and keep promises. God is not afraid to make promises. Now, what does that tell you? Well, let me illustrate 
You know, and Susie and I had uh, three girls, and then we lived in Ocala, Florida when they were all born. And I don't really know where Ocala, Florida is, but it's about an hour's drive north from Disney World. I mean, we went to, I, I heard it's a small world so much that I could hear it in my sleep. I never wanted to ride those rides ever again. You people say, we're going to take our family to Disney World. I say, well, good for you. I don't ever want to go back there. Um, but we took our kids, you know, every time we had a new kid, we had to go back there again. And we had the youth program. It was just all the, well, my kids were always trying to get daddy to promise them that he would take them to Disney World. But early on, I learned. Don't make any promises, big boy. And I couldn't make any promises, ladies and gentlemen, because I couldn't keep my promises. Big ones or little ones. And the reason that I couldn't keep promises is because there were factors over which I had no control. So I don't make promises. I don't make promises today. Because there are factors over which I have no control. But could I return to what I said just a minute ago? God is able to make and to keep promises. He's not afraid to make promises. What does that tell you? Gang, um, God makes promises about events 400 years before they occur. By the way, he makes promises about events a lot longer than 400 years before they occur. How does he do that? And by the way, here are two examples about Alexander the Great, how his kingdom was split up into four parts, and by Antiochus Epiphanes and the abomination of desolation. How does he do that? I'll tell you how he does it, folks. History does his bidding because he planned it. He, um, he's the author. He writes history, folks. He... History serves his purposes. History is nothing more than the unfolding in time and space of the great sovereign God's purposes and plans. You know, guys, if if I could just pause for a brief aside. If there were no other reason that you would respect this book other than the fact, the history that it contains uh, and the prophetic utterances that have come through... You've got to be a fool to ignore this book. If that were the only reason we had. But, folks, what I'm suggesting is, in terms of viewing history, you've got to understand that the fact that God makes and keeps promises, predicting these things and dozens others, demonstrates that the history in which you find yourself now living is more of the unfolding of this God who is sovereign over history. Here's the second thing that, um, that a Christian view of history would contain, and perhaps more uncomfortable to talk about. Tell me, what or who determines how long an empire will last? Let me give you a couple of things to consider. Uh, you don't need to turn here, but it's in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7, that says, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. Can I, can I quote you that again? When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, 
even, God makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now tell me, do you think that America's enemies are at peace with her today? <laughs> Neither do I. In fact, I don't know that we've ever been more hated around the world than we are today. And by the way, it's not just the Arab world. Uh, Europe doesn't care much for us. And I think there's a guy by the name of Chavez in South America. He doesn't like us either. And he's spreading that all over South America. Now, can I, can I quote that verse for you just again? <laughs> Let me get that back on the table. Um, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. But our enemies aren't at peace with us. Why is that? Well, I want to offer you an opinion. Now, guys, I, <laughs> I love truth, and I don't often say this is an opinion, but that's what this is. I'm about to give you an opinion. So you can take it or leave it. You can talk bad about me and write blogs about how stupid I am. That, that, that's fine. Here's an opinion that I, I'd like to share with you. Um, gang, um, where to start? Um, one of the reasons that I believe Christianity to be true, as opposed to all the other major world religions, Christianity is the only one that I would suggest to you is alive and vibrant and nimble and moves. Here's what I mean. Um, when Christianity came onto the face of the earth, the center of Christianity was in Jerusalem. But from there, because of the alive, active planting and moving of the Holy Spirit, the center of Christianity moved to Antioch. And then after it had been there for a while, it moved from there to Rome. Because the Holy Spirit was doing something in Rome. And then from Rome, it moved to Germany. That is the center of... By the way, this hasn't happened in Islam. The center of Islam has always been Arabia, always will be. It hasn't happened in Hinduism. The center of Hinduism is India, and it always will be. The center of Buddhism is in the Tibet, China. It always will be. It's always stayed there, but not Christianity. She's moved, ladies and gentlemen. The center of Christianity moved from Jerusalem to Antioch to Rome to Germany to the British Isles. And then somewhere, who I don't know when, the center of Christianity moved to America. And I want to suggest to you that the Holy Spirit is on the move again. Out of America. I don't know if you saw this. And guys, again, I said this is an opinion. <laughs> Take it or leave it. This is in the paper this week. This is uh, Tuesday's paper. Christian faith reshaping China. It says 50 to 70 million Christians in China. That's the commercial. You can't trust the commercial. You're probably right. But every missiologist I know, ladies and gentlemen, everyone I know is saying the same thing. That the new, potentially the new center of Christianity is China. Or perhaps Africa. Now why? Gang, when you read about Iran has nukes and North Korea is about to test an, um, a, a missile that can reach California. 
And you, you see this past week where Israel has now moved back into the Gaza Strip. What goes on in your mind? What do you think? Do you think that God is not aware of that? Does it cause you fear? Maybe, guys, if, if anything, it shouldn't cause us to be afraid. Now, I'm saying to you, in opinion, that what you, seeing, what you see being played out today on the face of this planet is the Holy Spirit is on the move. And bless God for it. Now, there's another text. This is in Proverbs 21.1. It goes like this. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whithersoever he wills. (laughs) You know what I think is happening? I think the great sovereign of history is turning a few king's hearts. It doesn't please me that North Korea is about to test that thing, but I'm telling you, they ain't testing it without the permission of the sovereign God of history. China, or the gospel is not moving around China without God's knowledge. i got to hurry. But here's, here's the third thing that I want you to consider in terms of a Christian view of history. Um, by the way, I should say this. All of the military might in the world is not going to help us if God becomes our enemy. If you think that America is impenetrable because we have this army and thing means nothing if God sees fit to withdraw. Now, but here's the third thing. Gang, God is still God even when he is nowhere to be seen. You know, uh, the postmodern world hates statements like that. They say, oh, that's how you Christians, you all are. You can't prove that silly sentence you just made. God is always around, even if you don't see him. You know, that's just an assertion of faith. Well, it is. That's right. It is. It's an assertion of faith. That's what it is. Let me tell you uh, um, just reasons to believe it. Um, R.G. Lee, do you know that name? R.G. Lee was the, was the pastor that God used to build Bellevue Baptist Church long before Adrian came. I mean, uh, uh, R.G. Lee was the man that put Bellevue Baptist on the map. Well, R.G. Lee preached a sermon one time that has been preached 1,400 times around. He preached it like 1,400 times around the globe. It's on, I've, I've got a copy of it. It's a great sermon. It's called Payday Someday. And it's, a, it's based on the story of Ahaz stealing Naboth's vineyard. Naboth owns this vineyard and the king of Israel wants his vineyard, Ahaz, and he can't get it. And he starts pouting and his wife Jezebel comes in and says, what you pouting for? And, and he's, well, I want that vineyard and I can't get it. He won't tell it to me. And, and, and Jezebel says, well, don't worry, I'll get it for you. And she does. And in the midst of this very ugly, horrible piece of injustice, um, R.G. Lee in this sermon, I mean, you think I shout? You ought to listen to this guy on this tape say, where is God? Where is he? In the midst of all of this injustice and ugliness and wickedness, where is he? He's there. 
And in a matter of hours, here comes Elijah the prophet. And um, he runs into Ahaz, and Ahaz says, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And and, And Elijah says, I'm not the troubler of Israel, you are. And let me tell you what God says. And of course, Ahaz and Jezebel, I mean, Jezebel, her blood was licked by dogs. Where was he? Well, he was there. I'll tell you another one. Uh, the story of, I love this story. It's in the book of Ruth. Remember that? The, 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 the star of the book of Ruth is not really Ruth. It's Naomi. Naomi is the mother-in-law. Her husband dies. Her two sons marry. And one of her sons marries Ruth. And her two sons die, and so she's, you know, just left with the two daughters-in-law. And so she heads back to her hometown, and she goes to Bethlehem, and Ruth says, I'm going to go with you. And she's, oh, no. And she says, oh, whether you go, I'm going to follow. And so Ruth follows and comes to Jerusalem, uh, comes to Bethlehem, which is her hometown. And as she's walking down the streets, the people say, hey, Naomi, Naomi, good to have you back. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi, because Naomi means blessed. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Oh, really? You know how that book ends? Ruth goes and marries Boaz, and Ruth and Boaz become the grandparents of David. Where was God? Oh, he was there. (laughs) He was superintending and governing, even though the silence was deafening. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, I've appealed to two biblical stories, but I'm going to appeal to one more. You remember? You remember when those days looked so dark? And things were unraveling before you? And it was bad. And you said, Where is God? And now you look back on it. And you say, I see it now. Folks, even when all history seems to be out of control, God's hands are still on the steering wheel. He's never in a hurry. Nothing nothing for him is ever time sensitive. Galatians chapter 4 says, In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. He does everything in the fullness of time. He does everything in the fullness of time, folks. All he does is in the fullness of time. Why? Because history is his lackey. History does what he says it to do, or what he tells it to do. Now, gang, we've got to hurry. Okay, knowing all of that, what are we supposed to be doing as Christians? That's what you're supposed to be thinking. But look at verse 32. I didn't read verse 32 accidentally. He shall seduce. Now that he is Antiochus Epiphanes. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. That is people who were um, a part of at least formally the covenantal people of God. He seduces them and they don't stand. But notice, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. 
Gang, these people in the face of Antiochus Epiphanes stood firm and took action. I, I, the, the King James uses the word exploits, and I love that, that term. The people of God stood firm and they did exploits. So there's two things I want to mention as we leave. What are we supposed to be doing as the people of God as we watch things just spiral? I mean, guys, and I'm not talking about homosexual agenda. I'm talking about our, our social justice. I'm talking about our influence around the globe. I'm talking about our economy. I'm talking about health concerns. What are we supposed to be doing in the face of all that? I'll tell you what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be standing firm and doing works of exploits. Doing exploits. Let me tell you real quick. Stand firm. That's a defensive measure. Stand firm. You know, guys, I told you this story. Um, I told you this story a long time ago. It was um, a Shakespearean play called Measure for Measure. And the, and the, the key players was Angelo. He was the mayor of Vienna. And, and uh, Isabella was the woman he tried to seduce. And Carmelo... Uh, was her brother, and he had arrested him and was going to kill him. And, and he says to Isabella, um, Isabella, if you'll become my lover, then I'll let your brother go. And, and he's a corrupt, wicked, vile man. And so she's trying to figure out what she's going to do. Am I going to give up my brother or am I going to stand? By the way, she had uh, committed herself to enter the convent. And, and, and she was, am I going to stay, remain firm to my scruples? And the whole theme of the play is, in the face of enormous evil, Will anyone stand firm? Well, are you? Are you ready to do that? You know, guys, last week, or a couple of weeks ago, I read you an email from Ronnie Stevens. Um, you know, and he was speaking to this group of Anglicans in Switzerland. And, uh, and the people walked out on him because he said that Christianity was the true religion. You remember I, I read you that? And um, he really sounded despondent, and I wrote him back. And here's what I wrote him. I, I quoted uh, Luke 18, 8, where Jesus says, When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Will he? Will he find it in you? When the Son of Man returns, is he going to find faith on the earth? And are you going to be one of them? Or will you be seduced? That's the defensive action. The other one is that they do works of exploits. I love that term. Doing works of exploits. That's the offense. Gang, we are to be so proactive in living a life of of visible, observable, beautiful grace. That the world will long for what it is that we have. My brother and sister in Christ, never has there been a time where it has been more important for you to live a life full of grace. Or, the option is to be seduced. A life that is different. A life that is conformed to the image of Christ. And, I, and I, uh, I'll leave you with another opinion. If we don't, 
and our country continues to spiral down, the blame will lie directly at the feet of the church, us. We're supposed to be the ones that are salt and light in this godless culture. So, history is unfolding before your very eyes and you have been called in the face of Antiochus Epiphanes. Stand firm and do works of exploits. Our Father, I do pray that you would stir your people, that you would remind them that nothing has happened uh, on the face of the planet that has caught you off guard. Nothing has happened that has surprised you. Um, Although, Father, we would love to see more demonstrations of your presence people of God have been longing for that for millennia. But Father, in the midst of the deafening silence, would you raise up a people who will stand firm and take action? Father, we'll never pull that off unless the Holy Ghost of God empowers us to do so. So we come to yield ourselves all over again to the blessed Holy Spirit, that he might indwell us, infill us, dominate us, take charge of us, so that we can bring glory to the great God of history. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.